Thank you for listening to this recording of one of the sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Milford, Connecticut. The sermon is one part of our public worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church, Milford. While much of the sermon has broad application, it is directed specifically to the congregation here in Milford and reflects our lives, needs, concerns, and context. We think it's important to note that the sermon follows many other aspects of worship, praise, singing, confession of sins and absolution, scripture reading, and sometimes a baptism or the reception of new members. It precedes prayers, confessions of faith, an offering, and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. All of these are integrated and ideally should not be separated. We're particularly concerned not to separate word and sacrament. By its nature, the sermon calls for a response, receiving the Lord's Supper with the accompanying prayers, reflections, and life of response and community. If you're not a part of Christ's presence, Milford, we hope the sermon is helpful to you and propels you to a full worship and engagement with Jesus' body in your own community. Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, no subject, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humble humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Not sure why. Sorry about that. So looking at this passage, kind of my first thought was, well, why, why is this here? Uh, in the midst of the exhortation and the, and the caring for the church and the, you know, last week we looked at how uh, living in the world is living in suffering and even living in the church is living in conflict. And so he's giving all of these instructions for dealing with that. Uh, that may just naturally lend itself towards and as the church, we're going to have structure. We're going to need leadership in order to, to function that way. I think there's also something of the Old Testament context. At the end of the last passage, he talked about how judgment was to begin with the household of God. Uh, that's a, a frequent theme in Old Testament prophecy. And often when that theme comes up, particularly in Ezekiel, I believe it's 9, uh, we see that theme of judgment at the household of God beginning there and then beginning within the household of God with the leaders, with the elders, with the priests. Now, what I said last week was that while in the Old Testament context, this idea of judgment beginning with the household of God is, is a negative context, or a negative comment. It's, it's saying to the household of God, correction is needed. Uh, in this context, Peter is turning that a bit. And you'll remember from last week that the judgment being talked about was as you're experiencing suffering, this is the evidence that you're actually enduring faithfully. Because if you weren't enduring faithfully, the sorts of sufferings he's talking about are not things that you're going to be suffering. You're just going to be going with the flow and you won't experience suffering. 
So the experience of suffering is actually evidence that you are judged as one who is in the household of God, who is built as a living stone into the household of God. And so consequently, when he's mirroring Ezekiel here, rather than turning to admonition to the leaders, he's turning to exhortation to the leaders. Now, I think there's, there's sort of a, a providential-ness in the way First Peter is laid out, and you, you, I would love to claim that I had this you know, grand scheme for what order we would be tackling things in, but I didn't. Uh, last week, we had our commissioning service. And at a commissioning service as a mission church, uh, we take vows. And so now we formally have members, uh, people who have made vows to the church and are now members together of a church. And I'm installed as the pastor. And so as a church, we have members, we have a pastor. Uh, but what makes us a mission church, as opposed to a, an individual church or a, a church proper or whatever you want to say, I think the word we use is particularized church, since we're Presbyterian and like creating jargon for such things. Um, the difference there is that we don't have an installed elder board, a leadership structure. And so I think it appropriate that as we are now constituted as a mission church, we begin to think about the fact that what God is doing in us is working us towards being an individual church, a particular church, a church that exists not independent of the broader structure, but capable of functioning within the context it's been placed in with leadership. And so we're going to be thinking about that some. There's a, um, in 1 Timothy 3, which is one of the classic places that you go to talk about leadership, uh, it opens with the statement, uh, he who aspires to be an elder or he who aspires to be an overseer aspires to a noble task. And we want to be careful to say, when we say aspire, it's not, and, and we're going to get into this more carefully in, uh, in the actual text of 1 Peter, but it's not saying if you're aspiring, that's like ambition for power. It's more saying this is a significant and important thing that the church needs, and so you need to take seriously what that's talking about. And as a church that is moving towards the process of having our own oversight board, our own elders, our own session, uh, we are entering into that application process. And it's a process that we enter into humbly and carefully. Uh, when we look at the world, there's a, a normal attitude, and you might think of uh, union and management labor disputes as an example of this. Uh, I had a friend that worked in a company that was a, a union company. And as a, a member of the union, he was always frustrated to receive the monthly newsletter because it spent the first half of the newsletter talking about how great it had made uh, life for its employees and how it had accomplished more than you know, virtually any other union in the country. And then it spent the second half of the newsletter talking about how awful conditions were for the employees and how they needed to do more in order to counter management. And he, got, you know, it, it, he, he was being a bit prophetic there, I guess, in looking at, wait a minute, this is kind of an ugly vision we've got. Well, then he moved over and became a manager. And suddenly, he's seeing the company trying to figure out how, within the constraints of what they've negotiated with the unions, they can wring as much as they possibly can out of their workers. And so there's this, this mindset in the way that we think about, uh, this is part of leadership and what do I say? In the English language, virtually anything that I say to describe those who are led is pejorative. It's a negative term. Uh, we don't like the idea of leadership and followers. We're a very anti-authoritarian culture, and I think it's, it's the nature of fallen humans to at least be anti-authoritarian, but we're as a culture particularly anti-authoritarian. And yet at the same time, we have this problem, again, nature of fallen humans, but as a culture, we're particularly this way, we tend to see leaders as existing 
for their own benefit. You think of the movie Braveheart. William Wallace, Scottish freedom fighter, who is working to provide a better life for the peasants of Scotland who are being taken advantage of by the nobles of England. And he's talking to Robert the Bruce, who is a noble of Scotland. And in confronting what's going on among Scotland's nobles, they're conspiring with the English to extract value from the peasants of Scotland. And he says to Robert the Bruce, you think that these people exist to provide you with position. I think that your position exists to provide these people with, and because it's a movie made for an American audience, he says, freedom. We might realize the the goal there is not actually freedom, it's flourishing. It's growing. Now, I'm I'm jumping here from, from what's the purpose of leadership in a secular political context to leadership in an ecclesiastical context, in the church. And the point of leadership and the point of followership is that we're working together to achieve this growth in grace, growth in conformity to Christ as he's revealed in the scripture. And so what we're seeing here is that biblical leadership is for the good of the body as defined by scripture to Christ's glory. So let me pray for us and then we'll move through the specifics of this this passage in 1 Peter 5. Uh, Lord Jesus, we come confessing that as fallen people, Uh, And as, for the most part, Western people, uh, we see leadership as being for the benefit of the leader, and we see followership as shameful. We are anti-authoritarian, and we're also anti-authority. And we are ambitious people. We praise ambition as a culture. And your word reveals to us a different vision for how an organization functions. A different vision that doesn't pit uh, management and labor against each other. That doesn't even label them according to their function. But rather sees them as the tools of your mission of accomplishing what you came into the world to accomplish in redeeming creation to yourself. Open our eyes to that vision. Overcome our resistance to your word and conform us to it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Peter launches into this exhortation to the elders and to the church, uh, he opens in in, in verse 2, he makes this statement, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And that word shepherd is actually the word we get the word pastor from. And so in talking, the, the Latin for shepherd is pastor. You might hear in in, in English we talk about a a pastoral setting and we're talking about like a farm or a a sheepfold. So the leadership, he's assigning to this role of pastoring. And pastoring is not just dictating to the flock what's happening. It's like the shepherd, caring for the flock, being concerned to cultivate and nurture the flock. And he gives kind of three couplets, not this but that, of how to do this. And the first one is, you see in verse 2 there, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Now, how do we know what as God would have you is? We're going to have to draw from Scripture what it is that God is saying, what is his form of leadership. And the, the first thing he hits on is not compulsion for the leader. That the leader is not functioning under a sense of compulsion. It's my duty to do this. 
I have to do this. I'm going to feel guilty if I don't do this. That's not the appropriate attitude for the leader to enter into leadership from. And that means, as we talk about sort of the, the aspiration process as a church, or as individuals that may be called to leadership, that aspiration is wrestling through that. Not, am I, am I doing this because I have to do it? But rather, am I doing this because I'm called to it and not in my own strength having to, to dredge up in myself somehow what is called for, but rather I'm in grace dependent on God so that I can do this willingly. Now, something that I've, I found a, a useful um, illustration of the nature of leadership and that, that, that touches on this and then the second cup, cup, couplet, uh, not for shameful gain but eagerly, in the book, It's Your Ship, uh, Captain G. Michael Abershoff explores his process of coming to leadership on the USS Benfold, uh, a, a ship, a, a relatively small ship in the U.S. Navy. And he observes this problem that exists in the way we think about leadership. In the Navy, what he saw as being the, the typical thing was a person would become a captain because it was a rung on the ladder to a better job. It was an important resume punch so that he could move on to a position with more power, more money, uh, more ability, more control, probably at the Pentagon. And so he was watching in his own uh, coming up under other people's commands as the people in those commands saw the people beneath them as rungs, as methods of getting themselves ahead. And so the goal was you didn't want your people to make waves because that would challenge the, the structure of how we do things. But when your people did do something good, you wanted to figure out how to demonstrate that what they'd done good was actually really just the result of your ideas. So you were constantly stealing the initiatives of your people if you thought they were sure successes. And if you didn't think they were sure successes, you weren't going to take any risks because you didn't want them to make you look bad. And he began describing how in, in his career he was seeing the, the toxic nature of that kind of leadership. Where you're going to... If you do something good, it gets stolen from you. And if you do something that, that doesn't work out, you get blamed for it and shuffled away so that the leader looks better. And as he came into his role as captain of the Benfold, he decided we're going to do things differently. He said, my role as the captain of the ship is not just to, is not just to get the ship to perform as well as it can for the Navy which was not actually most captains' chief goal. Most captains' chief goal was to get themselves advanced through their placement. He said, I'm throwing that out the window. I'm not going to worry about my advancement. My first goal is get the ship to perform as well as it can. But how do I do that? I develop the sailors that have been placed under my care to be the best they can be. And I'm stealing the Army slogan there. I realize that. But I'm developing the sailors under my control as people as people with gifts and abilities, as people with ideas. And I'm cultivating those ideas, and I'm drawing out what is in them that is useful. And I'm teaching them new things. I'm going to people and saying, what would you like to learn? How can we plug you in to, to gain skills and gain knowledge so that you can put that knowledge back into the service of the community? And he leaned against the model that said, when someone does something good, you got to steal it. He would rather broadcast to the whole ship how well an individual had done it. He'd reach out to other branches of the Navy to say, hey, this guy did this thing that's useful, and I think we need to change our policies. And that began to encourage a context where people could actually take risks. Because when something didn't work well, he'd instead of saying, well, that was your fault, and demoting the person for it, 
He'd have a debriefing session to say, what do we learn from something that didn't work? How can we do that better? What are other ways we can deal with it? And he began to see, just in these statistics of how the Benfold, which was a, a middling to lower end of average ship, began to outperform the rest of the ships in the fleet and began by its statistics for how they were supposed to function to be what he called, pardon my French, the best damn ship in the Navy. That became their slogan. He told people, that's what we're trying to be, and we're going to use our abilities to get there, and they did. Because when you don't look at leadership as an exercise in the leader looking for shameful gain, but rather as being an opportunity to eagerly engage the mission you've been given, we see a different attitude. We see a different mindset. In the, and I use this word hesitantly because in 2016 it became more of a political term, but in the evangelical world, uh, in churches that are committed to the gospel and are committed to the idea of the church moving forward, we have a problem with celebrity pastors. We love finding an individual and deciding that that individual is, you know, has it, whatever it is. And if we can hitch our wagon to that star, our church is going to go far. You may know the name uh, Josh Harris. Josh Harris, as a teenager, was a very good communicator. And he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye that became a national bestseller. Now, the problem is, if you want to analyze the book from a biblical perspective, he passes off a lot of things that might be good ideas as God's demand for your life. And if you ask a teenager to write a book about exegeting scripture, you wouldn't be surprised if a teenager would do something like that. But as a church culture, evangelicalism does not do a good job of expecting discipleship, of expecting slow process. We want to build big, and so we don't care about building strong and building carefully. And so Josh Harris writes this book, becomes a national bestseller. Well, this guy's clearly talented. We better make him the leader of a large church. And so as, as an early 20-year-old with no college education, certainly no seminary education, he's leading a megachurch. And the megachurch is going gangbusters. But about 10 years later, he starts encountering people that got hurt by his ministry. And he's never been equipped to deal with that. And he doesn't know what to do with that. And so he steps back from his role as the leader of a megachurch. And in fairly rapid succession, this, well, maybe I, I did something wrong and I wasn't supposed to be there in the first place, leads to the downfall of his marriage. Remember, most of his career was based on his view of, uh, his first book was about dating, his second book was about getting married, and he wrote it before he was married himself. His marriage falls apart. And in relatively short succession after that, within a few weeks, he comes out publicly stating that he doesn't view himself as a Christian anymore. Now, the remarkable thing is, 18 months after that, he released a course that for $275 you could participate in that helps you to work through your own deconversion process. Because it's the only two, and I'm not saying this to be down on Josh Harris. I'm saying this to be down on how we think as churches. The only tools that Josh Harris was given were consumerism's tools were the tools that say the leader's glory is the glory that the others get to bask in. And so we've got to raise up leaders quick. We've got to see talent quick. We've got to plug it in quick. We've got to build as big as we can, as fast as we can, so we can get the most bang for the buck. The result, of course, is you've got a guy that 18 months into his own deconversion is trying to make money off of helping other people work through this. 
He hasn't gone and sat under wise people that have wrestled through these problems and spent years understanding it. He's encountered a new problem with 18 months, feels he's an expert who can guide you through it. It's a destructive form of leadership. And again, this is not about Josh Harris. This is about how the evangelical church thinks about leadership. At the more local level, uh, we can see in our own denomination. I remember one of my professors, when we were dealing with this passage, he said, you know, in, in the average PCA church, the important things for being a good elder are a firm handshake and good eye contact. Look through the scriptures. When we look for the qualifications for an elder, we don't encounter eye contact and handshake anywhere. But we tend to identify people that are able to to put off the uh, aura of being a successful person. It is much, much more common for people who are elders in our churches to be lawyers, doctors, successful business owners, uh, university profs. It is very uncommon for our spiritual leaders to be janitors or people that you know, run a small business that kind of struggles along and, and meets the needs of, its, uh, of the family that cares for it. We tend to confuse worldly success with spiritual success. And so when he's saying, don't be given to shameful gain, but eagerly pursue the mission of the church, the goal of care for others, that's going to give us a different set of norms for what we expect of our leaders. And that lends itself to this attitude that it's not about me. It's about the church as directed by Scripture. And that gets us into a bit of what, what is the elder doing? What is the leader doing? Uh, we'll often compare models for church leadership to political processes, and that's sort of helpful for creating categories, but it can throw us off. Because very often we'll compare Presbyterianism to a indirect democracy or a Republican form of government. And the problem there is we might get the idea that elders have constituents, that leaders' jobs is to represent the interests of their constituents. And that's not how leadership works in the church. The leader is not representing a constituent. The leader is representing the mission of God as interpreted through the scriptures of God. And this actually even further juggles, you know, we, we might think, okay, it's, it's better than I'm representing the interests of my, consist- my, my constituents to say, well, I'm just going to vote my conscience. But it's even beyond that. When a person becomes an elder in a church and joins a session, they're saying, not even my conscience is the thing here, but rather the entity to which I'm taking vows to. I'm voting the corporate conscience. I'm called to make decisions that go beyond my individual sense of what's right and wrong, but rather uniting myself to the body and saying I'm doing what's best for the body according to the body corporately understanding what is God calling us to in this context. It's a radically different understanding of how leadership works. Look at the third couplet, uh, not domineering, but as examples. Now, we say that church authority is declarative, not compulsory. This is one of the classic definitions of how the church leads. It was one of the the Reformation-era Protestant versus Catholic. During the Middle Ages, the church was trying to use compulsory power to compel its membership. And the Protestant church was saying, that's not actually the power we see being given to the church. Uh, What we heard when Peter makes the declaration, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, 
on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. I'm giving you the power to bind on earth what is bound in heaven and loose on earth what is loosened. Or sorry, re- reverse that. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's enormous power, but it's not compulsory power. It's not the power of the sword. It's not the power of the state. It's not the ability to throw people in prison when they disagree with you. It's the ability to speak the word of God. That's what declarative means. That the power that the church has is declarative power, the power to say, this is God's word spoken into this context. But we want to push even further there. Uh, You can be domineering without being compulsory. You can use declarative power in a domineering way. And I would argue the scripture calls us to a different attitude than that. Now note Titus 1 verse 9. Describing the elder, it says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. There's truth here. The elder's job is to safeguard truth and to teach that, church into, to teach that truth into the church. But it goes on, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The sound doctrine is important, but the sound doctrine is to encourage. And I don't mean encourage in kind of a touchy-feely, I never say anything negative mindset, but that the goal here is encouraging those into a deeper engagement with sound doctrine, which means conformity to Christ. And also, of course, to refute those who oppose it. But there's a a way that we use that declarative authority. There's a way that elders are supposed to speak into the life of the church. Psalm 25, 9 says, He that is God leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Those who are supposed to be functioning, and notice uh, what it says here, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. If the elders are to be examples to the flock, what we're saying is not that they're some sort of spiritual elite, but rather that they are exemplars of what every Christian is called to. Every Christian is called to the character that we see being held up in Scripture for leaders. It's just that in the leaders, we're saying we have a good example of a person doing this. And so, if the flock is called to humility, the exemplar of the flock is called humility. So Psalm 25 saying that God leads the humble in what is right and the means he's using to do that is the leaders in his church, then the church leaders are going to need to be humble. Proverbs 16, 21 and 23. The wise of heart is called discerning and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. The leader is not seeking to domineer and to say, I have authority and so this is what God's word says to you, do it. But is rather seeking to engage with, to come alongside of, to find persuasive and judicious ways of engaging with wrong and error when they see it and need to refute it. And to encourage people into a more full-orbed embrace of conforming ourselves to the word of God. Immediately following this passage in verse 6, we read, To everyone, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Uh, Leadership is not about personal exaltation. It's about being an example in humility. James 3, 
makes this statement. Not many of you should become leaders, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There again, that's their exemplar role. We don't want to put in leadership a person who is not an example of what God calls the average believer to. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Now James is not saying there that leaders have to be perfect. He's saying that that's impossible. So he's acknowledging that the leader is going to be imperfect, but is going to have to be very sensitive to his own imperfection. And that's the the direction and weight of where he goes. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they will obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large and are driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet boasts of great things. If the authority of church leadership is declarative, that's tied to the tongue. That's tied to the teaching process, the interpretation and application of Scripture process. And he's saying this can be used like a club or it can be used to enable, to direct, to conform, to encourage. And it's very clear that he's pushing away and against the club attitude. And the attitude that says, I have authority, and so therefore everyone's got to do what I say. Rather, instead of domineering, to be his examples. To be those who hold up to the flock the idea of humility. The idea of gentleness. The idea of leading, caring for, protecting. Being strong where strength is needed, but doing so in a way that is loving. Judicious, persuasive. Now the second, you know what, I I failed to tell you what we were doing here in in my outline. First of all, we're dealing with the what. That was the what for elders. Now we're going to do the what for the people. Then we're going to do the why and the how. Sorry, I meant to tell you that. So now we're moving into the second part of that uh, that first point, which is our major point. Uh, What, look at the end here. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, we have all taken vows as of last week, and that wasn't a mistake. It was actually the intention that those of you who were transferring from other congregations within Christ Presbyterian Church's other congregations take vows to each other so that as a church, we've actually done that. We've actually said we're throwing in our lot together. We're caring for each other together. And those vows include to submit themselves to the discipline of the church and promise to practice its purity and peace. Now, I'm remembering my professor in undergrad who had been a, an elder for, for years, for probably like 30 to 40 years. And I remember in engaging this idea in one of his courses, he said, I'm speaking to you as a very tired and probably burned out elder. Because he said, when we join the local church, we all take this vow that says we're going to practice the purity and peace and submit ourselves to discipline. And he said, across my experience of many, many years as an elder, every time it actually gets to the point where we have to step in someone, you're going outside the pale. You've left the reservation, and we're here to call you back. That person says, no. I've got it. I can figure it out for myself better than you can figure it out for me. No. Don't speak to me. 
the quotation that Peter includes in the end of verse 5, from Proverbs 3, verse 34. Towards the scorners, he, that is God, is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. We can see that scorn of God when we scorn the direction of those that God has placed in spiritual authority over us. There's a, an example that I saw in a church where I got to be an elder for a while. Now, I wasn't there for the start of this, but a man had begun cheating on his wife, left his family. The session went to him and said, this is inconsistent with what you have said as one who follows Christ. You need to repent. You need to return to your family. The wife was willing to forgive him and willing to welcome him back. And he said, no, I know what's best for me. I'm not in love with her anymore. I love this other person. You don't understand. Go away. And he experienced the scorn of God. As the church said, this person is not functioning as a believer. Needs to be viewed as a non-believer. Should not be receiving the sacraments from the church that are there to strengthen believers because he's rejected that. And for many, many years, more than a decade, he continued in that. Now what's encouraging is that after well over a decade of his scorning God's direction, he found himself, this was, you know, the, the, the relationship he'd left his wife had fallen apart. He'd come to another church. And in that church, he'd begun to realize what he'd done. How he'd broken his family. How he'd ignored the insight of God speaking to him through the church, calling him to repentance. And he began to repent. And when he wanted to become a member of that church, that church came back to our church and said, is this guy a member in good standing? And our church said, well, no, he's not. And he wasn't trying to hide from that. I think he probably prepped them, saying, by the way, there, there's, there's dirt in my past. And so our two churches began to work together to say, what does repentance look like? When, you know, years later, this, this marriage has ended and both members have moved on, what does restoration look like to this father who has not been there for his children for over a decade? And we were able to watch, and it, it, there's a lot of sorrow in this because it took years and years and there was so much pain and so much complexity that had been thrown into that. But to watch as years later, this person genuinely repented and began to genuinely seek restoration, began to seek to be there for his children again as a father. We're called to humility as people who are placed under the spiritual authority of the church. And why? Why do we see this? This process exists for discipleship. Uh, in our individualism as Westerners, I want to say my discipleship is up to me and ignore the need for those outside of me to speak into my discipleship. When Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's setting up the mission for the church. And the way that mission is accomplished is through the church establishing spiritual authority that disciples its membership and grows its membership in learning to obey and observe all that I've commanded you. This is actually the process by which Jesus carries out his mission discipleship moving through the church. 
there's a difference between the role of uh, event planning and the role of a church seeking to build community. The church isn't just wanting to throw a good party that makes people feel content. The church is looking to develop a community that reflects the image of Christ into the community around it. A Christian community development is about more than just making consumers happy. It's about bringing creatures who have been restored to the image of Christ into greater and greater conformity to the image of Christ. And so as we're stepping into that process, part of how we identify who God is calling to be elders in our midst is observing each other, knowing each other. And when I say observing, don't hear that that means that we have this scorecard mentality when I'm going around like checking off, oh, did, did someone say something wrong? Did some, no, it's rather that as I'm engaging with my brothers and sisters, I'm saying, could I see this person in spiritual authority? Could I submit to this person's spiritual direction? And by that, I don't mean, would I enjoy that? Would that consumeristically make me feel good about myself? But rather, would I be made more holy? Would I be made more godly? by this person speaking into my life. Now, I'm not saying we're opening nominations right now, but the process by which we're going to identify leadership in our church and begin that aspiration process, which is a slow process, is eventually we'll do nominations. And by nominations, we're not saying who's popular, who's successful, who seems to be doing good by the standards of the world. We're saying, who do I see as someone that is gifted by God to exercise spiritual authority that would actually make me as an individual and us as a community more Christ-like. Now how does Jesus accomplish this process? If the process is this working together as leadership and people of the church in order to build us more and more into the image of Christ, the how is supplied by Christ himself. Look at verse 1. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And notice the, the tenses here, as a partaker, present tense, in the glory that is going to be revealed, future tense. Peter is accessing, is accessing the glory that Jesus, by his suffering, has purchased as future glory for the restoration of all things to himself, and yet he's a partaker now. In Matthew 28, he opens the charge, go and make disciples of all nations, with the statement, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's the source of the ability for the church to go and make disciples, which is this process of exercising spiritual direction and leadership, shepherding. And he closes with the statement, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's by Christ's presence in the church that the church is able to engage in this radical form of leadership that defies all cultural ideas of what leadership is supposed to do. That the church is able to engage in the submission to church leadership that defies cultural ideas of how submission to leadership works. It's only by the power of Christ from his suffering operating in us that we can, as a, a church, exercise biblical leadership and biblical followership and accomplish the mission that God has given his, his church of carrying the reality of the gospel into the world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your word calls us to something beyond us. Your word lays out an example to us that we realize is impossible. It's beautiful, but it's impossible.
apart from you. And so we call on you as your people, as your church. As you call us, some of us to exercise spiritual leadership. To speak your word into the lives of the congregation. To direct and to hold accountable and to call the congregation to deeper conformity to you and to to the rest of us as those who are called into submission to your church. We're called to something that is beyond us. That we can't do apart from your presence in us. Apart from your glory. Working through your church. Conform us to that reality. By your power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.